Welcome to the Outpost Podcast. We're currently in a series focused on God's hospitality to us and through us. Our hope is that you're challenged and encouraged in your walk as a disciple of Jesus. Enjoy. One thing that um, Tim Keller talks about a fair bit that I found really helpful is that in every culture, there are things that are to be championed and celebrated, and there are things that are to be challenged. Every single culture. And it's true of families, it's true of individuals, that there are things that should be celebrated saying, you're actually doing this really well. There is this that needs to change. So it's true for us, it's also true for entire cultures. And it's interesting in this space, as we enter into a few weeks, focused particularly on hospitality, and as Nick introduced, I think he said this, like it's one of our core practices, is that we practice hospitality. Practice gets used twice in there, doesn't it? One of our core practices, we practice hospitality. It gets kind of repetitive, but you get the idea. Um, and that word hospitality does bring to mind different things for different people. Completely unique to every other word where it's completely obvious what you mean. Definitely true of many words, definitely true of hospitality. So I'm just curious, what is the difference between hospitality as the world is practicing it, particularly here in Australia in 2022, versus biblical hospitality? Are there things in Australia in 2022 that can be celebrated saying, we actually nailed it, this is a really good outworking of hospitality, but this needs to be challenged? So the question's up on the screen, or will be very shortly. What is the difference between biblical hospitality and hospitality as practiced in the world around us? Have a chat. I know this wasn't the direct question up there, but I hinted at it. Is there anything that you would say should be affirmed about the way that hospitality is practiced generally here in Australia at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. Nailed it. I mean, Jesus hit that up, didn't he? Saying in a similar way to that, that don't invite people that you know are going to be able to invite you back. Invite those who can't repay you. That's challenging, isn't it? All right. What else? A couple more things that came from your discussion. We have the word entertainment. And I think we don't use it as much at the moment, but you entertain someone coming into your house. And that's a bit different than what you'd see in biblical hospitality, isn't it? It's not entertainment. It's good. Anything else? If I understand you correctly, Rob, are you saying that biblical hospitality should be fun? Yeah. Yeah. So the Bible, you can actually enjoy yourself and some of that is actually in the Bible. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying that's the sum total of it, but that's where you kicked off. Um, I think the phrase, make yourself at home, is a beautiful phrase. And I think that is something that should be affirmed in our culture. When you invite someone into your home, and it's not something that everyone says all the time, but it's a reasonably common phrase, make yourself at home. My house, your house. Interesting, isn't it? A definition that I really like is this biblical hospitality at its core, is any action that moves someone along the continuum from stranger to family. 
moving along from stranger to family. Here's a quote from Scott Cormode. Hospitality is the offer to extend the privileges of community to those who do not have the standing to expect it, especially those who are vulnerable because they are strangers. So hospitality often involves food. I'm sure that came up in your discussion, but it is so much more than a meal. So for our kids, Christy and I have a duty and responsibility to provide our kids with food every day. It's not hospitality when we make food for our kids. But when we bring someone else in to enjoy the privileges and responsibilities of our home and our family, an outsider, treating an outsider as though they were an insider, that is an act of hospitality. It's not putting on a show, as we've discussed. It's not entertainment. We're not pretending that we always eat this way. Like It's not that we can't do things nice for other people. But it's also not that we're like, oh, I always eat like this past the lobster, you know, kind of thing. Like, we're real and we're opening up our actual home to people. And the, the main issue with putting on something that is so much bigger than we normally can do is that it's a massive inhibitor to actually doing it. If it is such an ordeal to get your house into that particular mode that you think it needs to be in and to prepare the food that you think you need to be able to prepare in order to invite someone over that you never do it, the standard by which you um, are viewing hospitality is too high. It's not helpful. We don't invite people into what we see as idyllic, but rather the real. Invite someone into what you can. Invite them into your life. I remember receiving, and many others have done a similar thing, receiving hospitality that was extravagant in Southeast Asia. As myself and others uh, were in this little Karen village in northern Thailand and we're being served meat every day, that didn't happen for them on a regular basis, but they were going above and beyond for us. And it is a humbling thing to receive generous hospitality, particularly from someone who doesn't have the means that you do. But it's also... At the same time, they didn't serve us Vegemite, you know. They didn't give us what they thought we would want. They didn't go and completely change how they did things in order to serve us something totally foreign to them. They invited us into their culture, into their families, into their homes and provided something in the order of what they would normally have. Hospitality is bringing someone into your life. The Greek word that we translate as hospitality doesn't appear that many times in the New Testament, but it's philozenia. And as far as Greek words go, they're not super um, foreign to us. So philo is brotherly love. Like in Philadelphia, something's made of that. But brotherly love. And xenia, stranger. So xenophobic, afraid of those that are different to you. So this is love of a stranger. So thus, hospitality could be defined as loving a stranger or the act of making someone more family and less stranger. As I've already said, it's to treat an outsider like an insider. We're going to look at a whole bunch of different aspects of hospitality over these next few weeks.
So we've got um, Dave that's going to bring a word next week, and then Nick, and then Christy. So the four of us are going to hit up this thing of hospitality, and the, the overall theme is his hospitality to us and through us. And today, focused on his hospitality to us. And then next week, through us to one another. The week after, through us to our neighbours. And then the final week, through us collectively to McLaren Vale and beyond. So it moves away from just being individually or as families to us together as the church. What can we do in this space of hospitality? If we're seeing that as loving strangers, moving them along that continuum toward family. It's really important that it starts with him. And you notice in that phrase, his hospitality to us and through us, he's the initiator, he's the one that everything starts with, and it's acknowledging that everything good is from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. We see it time again in the scriptures. We love, why? Because he first loved us. Jesus said to his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. We are to forgive one another as we have been forgiven. We have received freely and so we give freely. It starts with him and it comes to us and we receive it and we enjoy it, but we also share it with others. But if it's good actually starts with him every single time. This basic principle, first we receive and then we give and it's definitely true in this area of hospitality. So we need first of all to know this God and to know his hospitality. And we see that he is the most hospitable one who has ever existed. We see it in the act of creation. God makes a place for us. We had no right to have a place of our own, let alone a place that is designed specifically for us, perfectly for us. But he lovingly gives us privileges of family. And knowing that we could actually defile his perfect world, he actually gave us the ability to do so, entrusting the world to us. So by this definition, you could say that a true act of hospitality gives an outsider the opportunity to make a mess, actually giving power to an outsider, inviting them in in a place where they can actually make a mess. I'd like you to open up to Psalm 23. There are a couple of stacks of Bibles just here at the front, which Eloise is generously offering to pass around. Maybe one or two others can, can join her in that pursuit. So open up to, to Psalm 23 and here we have the most memorized chapter in the entire Bible. It is a very well-known passage of Scripture, and I commend it to you. Um, if you have memorized it, awesome. If you have not committed it to memory, I encourage you to. But I want us just to, to sit with this for a minute and just consider what he has done for us the amazing generosity of our God. So whether it's helpful to, to read or just to, to close your eyes and, and to receive this, but I want you to enter in. So this is a personal psalm. So it's written by David, and he's not 
talking theory. He's talking reality and personal experience. The Lord is my shepherd. So David, King, King David is the um, shepherd of his people Israel. But he's saying, my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. And it continues to be such a personal psalm. So as we read this together, I just invite you to receive this and be reminded again of his love for you, his hospitality for you. As this was true of David and it is true of everyone who believes. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I just invite you to sit with that for a minute and just read again. We have the images there of the Lord as our shepherd, the Lord as our host. But just sit with that for a minute. Father, we commit ourselves to you once again. We ask that you would open our eyes to the reality of your hospitality to us. That you are the good shepherd. You are the great host. And you have prepared what we need. We don't need to fret. We don't need to stress. Because you are our provider. You take care of us. And that we get to dwell in your house forever. As we look at these things, we see that Jesus, you can write this psalm about Jesus. Jesus could have written this psalm himself about the Father in terms of how the Father took care of him. He lived it out. He lived that reality of trust in the Father and that dependence, knowing that God was good for it. And we, in the same way, can trust that God is good for it. He treats us like family, preparing a table before us. Even in the presence of our enemies, preparing a table before us. We will dwell in his house forever. He treats us like family. It's our invitation to live in that same way that Jesus did. Personal trust in a personal God. We see a hospitality of God right throughout the scriptures. And we definitely see it in the person of Jesus. On one occasion we're told that Jesus withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out they followed him and he welcomed them. Spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Another gospel tells us that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It sounds a lot like family. What parent wouldn't do everything they can to provide healing for their kids when they need it? You know, he responds, he teaches them, 
He heals those who need healing. And there's this very basic need of food. And so he takes what would probably feed one family and he feeds 5,000 families with that one meal. He's treating them like family, taking a very personal concern for people that were grown-ups and could have taken care of themselves, but he takes care of them. He extends hospitality to them and meets their needs. He saw a need and treated a bunch of strangers like family and provided for them. The next day, there's a heap of people that are gathering around Jesus, and he calls them out. And he says, you are here because you ate your fuel. Do not work for food that spoils, but eat, but work for the food that leads to eternal life. And then he goes on to say, I am the bread of life. And he says it two different times in that same passage. I am the bread of life. And you can imagine them kind of ticking over. You are the bread of life. Like, what does that mean? What are we going to do with you if you are bread? And he just like hints out a little bit more, a little bit more. Then he just comes out and says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. There are six occasions where he says, eat my flesh, and four where he says, drink my blood, all in quick succession. And that is a time where a number of disciples turned away and stopped following him. We were talking about this on Thursday morning and Nick was saying, I reckon for the rest of Jesus' ministry, his disciples were like, oh man, someday we're going to have to eat this bloke. And then they get to the Last Supper, and Jesus is like, this is my body, which is broken for you. And they're like, it's bread that we're going to eat, not actually Jesus. That's a good thing. But it's one thing to take personal responsibility for people who are strangers to you and take care of them as though they were family. But Jesus takes it to a whole nother level. So Jesus provides them with his own life. He wasn't talking about them needing to physically eat his body, but he was talking about his body needing to actually be given for their sustenance and for their life. The only way for them and us to have true life in them was for him to die and for us and for them to have the same kind of reliance in him as we have in food to sustain our bodies. It's that same level of dependence upon him that we need to have. He gave himself up for us to make a bunch of strangers family. While we were still sinners, he died for us. While we were his enemies, that's when he died. We were without God, without hope in the world. He gave everything for us. I want you to open up to Revelation chapter 3 and have a look at verse 20. A beautiful invitation from Jesus. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 says, "Here I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me." 
beautiful invitation of fellowship with him. In pretty much every culture, sharing a meal with someone is an indication of trust and an indication of intimacy, and definitely true of Palestine in the first century. Incredible declaration of intimacy. I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It's beautiful, but also tragic. It's tragic in that this is an invitation that Jesus gives to the church. And so if you follow through the implications of this, you've got Jesus who's standing outside the door of a church. He's not on the inside. When he's making this appeal, when he's making this invitation, he's saying, currently I am not with you in the way that I am offering to be with you. I've set things up so that all you need to do is hear my voice, open the door, and I'm in there with you, and we share that intimate relationship together. But currently, my reality is I'm not in there with you because of your choices. And so we have a look back through this passage, and we see a bit more um, of, of what's going on. So that if we go back to the, to the start of Revelation, so Revelation, you've got John who's exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and it's a Sunday, and he says he's in the spirit, and he sees this vision of Jesus. It is an overwhelming vision of Jesus, massive, beautiful, glorious Jesus. And he just falls down, as in John, not Jesus. John falls down as though dead in front of Jesus because of the majesty of who he sees in front of him. And then Jesus kindly you know, gets him up, and then he... He dictates these seven letters to these seven different churches. And this is the final of those letters that Jesus dictates, John writes down, and then sends off to the church. But you get to the very end of each of these letters, all seven times, we are told a pretty amazing promise because you can look at these things and go, oh, maybe this was just for that one particular church. But verse 22 says, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So yes, it was true for that particular church, but it's also true for everyone. Everyone who has ears, anyone in this place have ears? Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. It's an invitation to us. And we've got much that we can learn from this church of Laodicea. Because you have what's often referred to as common grace. God has sent his reign on the righteous and on the rogue or the unrighteous. Everyone has been given a place on this planet by God and that is his grace to us. We have air to breathe. We have the basic necessities of life. We have all these things as a gift from him and it is his common grace to us. But there is also this opportunity for us to live in perfect communion and fellowship with him there is an offer for us to have our sins forgiven and for us to be set free and those things are not so common those things require faith on our part and we say yes and we do something about it in order to receive his beautiful wonderful gift So these guys, if we go back to the previous verse, 
uh, before verse 20, so verse 19, finishes off with, Be zealous and repent. Start of that verse, As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Earlier, Jesus says, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I'll vomit you out of my mouth. That's intense. Why would he say to a church, I will vomit you out of my mouth? We'll go back to the start and have a look. Verse 14. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I think we can all appreciate how nice it is to have a cool drink of water on a hot day, how nice it is to have a hot beverage on a cold day. Lukewarm? No one wants that. Jesus definitely doesn't want that. He's made that abundantly clear. But what's the issue there? Some have said, you know, I'd rather that you sort of be cold towards me rather than be lukewarm. Doesn't really make sense. So we we keep reading, we get a few more clues. For you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Here are a bunch of people saying that we've got everything we need. Self-sufficient but not understanding the desperate place they were actually in. Certainly in a spiritual sense, which is the greatest reality. Sometimes we think the spiritual is sort of to the side, somewhere over here. But it's the most fundamental, foundational part of who we are, is our spiritual being. And so Jesus is saying to them, you don't know what the truth is about you. You are self-reliant. And you are in no way zealous. They're the two things. Be zealous and repent. Actually have some passion. And what is it that he's got a problem with? Right back at the start, I know your works. How do your works stack up at the moment? Does your life indicate that you are passionate about Jesus? Does your life indicate that you are dependent upon him or that you are dependent upon yourself or dependent upon someone else? Where do you place your trust and your hope? We've got a church that was undergoing persecution that we don't understand because we haven't experienced it. And there were many things about them that would have looked good. But Jesus cuts to the heart and says, Be zealous and repent. 
He's incredibly hospitable to us. He is like those chefs who all they want is for you to enjoy the meal. They cook something amazing. Just enjoy the food that I'm setting before you. God is like that. Just enjoy what I'm setting before you. But it's like we have this table that is prepared before us and we're like, I'm just going to get some Maccas. I'll take care of this one for myself. Don't put yourself out, God. I got this. And we're actually putting something on ourselves that he has already paid for, he has already prepared, and we are rejecting. Be zealous and repent. These guys were deluded. They thought they were self-sufficient, yet did not see their significant need. For us to accept hospitality is humbling. You know, there's times when, what can I bring for dinner? And I'm like, just bring yourself. Nothing. For some of us, that's easier than for others. Accepting Jesus' hospitality is going to challenge us. There's that Pharisee who says, or thinks, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. Because what was happening was she was washing Jesus' feet and he was feeling pretty uncomfortable about it. He's an interesting guest to have, Jesus. And Peter who says, you would never wash my feet. Because it was Jesus that was doing something that was so lowly and despicable. You would never wash my feet. Jesus will challenge us with his hospitality, but we need to acknowledge that it's his house. It's his food. And we're not going to actually get to choose some of those details that we might want to choose. It's his way, and he knows what is best. There will be times that our will is different to his will. Are we willing to submit our will like Jesus did when he said, if there's any other way, then let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Are we willing to accept his hospitality with all that it brings and acknowledge that, yep, he's knocking on the door and we might feel like, oh, he's coming into my house. No, no, this house belongs to him. I belong to him. The food belongs to him. So we come humbly, humbly before the one who owns everything. We're not hosting him. He's not just bringing dessert. I got this one covered. You just bring dessert. Thanks, Jesus. Hey, Jesus, can I get some warm fuzzies with zero accountability, please? As I sing this worship song, can you make me feel really good right now? I'd really appreciate that. I don't want to do anything that you've told me to do in the scriptures, but I just want to feel good. Let me feel good. We accept his hospitality knowing that it means he knows best. It's a basic concept concept of lordship. It's such an important one. It's his will. It's his way. I just want to give us a moment. We'll do it now instead of after the next couple of songs. Riley, if you can just pop a couple of questions up on the board. Uh, just to invite you to, to sit with this for a minute. Invite you to sit with 
some different pictures that I've painted today. There might be another one to do with his hospitality that's more helpful for you to focus on. Um, but the Lord as your shepherd, the Lord as your host, Jesus as the bread of life, Jesus standing and knocking at the door. So which image stands out to you most today? What is your next step? I invite you to sit with that on your own for a moment and then to discuss with somebody else. And if there is time to pray for one another, it might be that you do that later on. But he is your host. He is the one who's calling you into more. And we don't want to stop the more that he's got for us because we're self-sufficient. Because we just don't have any zealousness, any passion for him, that would mean we say no to other things in order to say yes to him. So as soon as you're ready, chat with someone nearby and take a moment to pray for one another. Father, we ask that you would meet us where we're at right now. Lead us and guide us. Thank you for the beautiful reality of you Bring us into your family. And we don't ever want to forget about your grace to us. Your grace in Jesus who gave himself up for us. Such is the great love that you have for us. I pray that we would receive what you've done. We would acknowledge your goodness and your grace. And we would also position ourselves to continually receive what you have for us each and every day. Thank you that you are good and that you are here. Hallelujah and amen.